I'm going to talk to you this afternoon about the relationship between Hollywood, movies, and American politics. Um, I'm amused to see that there's a book out in the lobby by someone else on the subject, but <laughs> my one wasn't published in this country, so that's, that's what was going on there. Um, I'm aware that I'm fighting a slightly losing battle, or at least this, the odds are staked against me, because I think a lot of people regard this subject as innately silly. And that's part of what I want to challenge with my book, which I'm in the middle of writing. I want to make the case for why how Hollywood behaves during an election matters and how it can affect the outcome of that election. So I'm going to start with some very recent events, go back a little bit into history, then come back again, and I'll try and deal with some characters that should be familiar. I'm going to talk first of all about the recent political conventions, which I presume most of you will be aware of. So <laughs> the highlight of the 2012 Republican convention was the surprise appearance of 82-year-old actor Clint Eastwood. His speech, which came on just before Mitt Romney, so it was very important in the running order, was billed as a shock, although we'd been tipped off 24 hours in advance, and when he walked on stage, the audience went absolutely wild. Clint went on to deliver a rambling, overlong speech that was described by many reporters as, quote, a senior moment. <laughs> Clint pointed to an empty chair next to him and said that this was President Obama, who had joined him on stage to discuss policy. The idea of debating an empty chair probably started as a joke, but Clint seemed to take it more and more seriously as the evening wore on. <laughs> Mr. President, how do you handle promises that you have made when you are running for election? How do you handle them? I mean, what do you say to people, he asked. He went on to question the empty chair about specific policies on Afghanistan, Oprah Winfrey, Obama's unfulfilled promise to close the U.S. prison at Guantanamo, the war in Iraq, and if the empty chair thought that there were too many lawyers in politics. <laughs> By the way, Mitt Romney was trained in law. The five-minute speech dragged on for 12 minutes and only ended when someone shouted, Say, make my day, a reference to Eastwood's catchphrase from the Dirty Harry movies. With some reluctance, Clint said, Oh, all right then. Go ahead, Mr. President, make my day. The audience applauded, and mercifully, it was over. What I want to explore is why the Clint Eastwood debacle happened and why it matters and why it was discussed so much in the media. With regards to the first question, the answer is simply that the Mitt Romney campaign was starstruck by the idea of Clint Eastwood speaking and so made a big mistake by not setting any parameters for what he should say. Clint had just given an enthusiastic endorsement of Mitt at a fundraiser in Idaho a few weeks before. Coming off stage, Romney said... Clint just made my day. What a guy. Convinced that Eastwood's appearance at the Republican National Convention would be a headline stealer, Team Romney invited him to speak and set no limits and no rules on what he should say. Clint later told a local newspaper that he basically went on stage without a script or any plan. Quote, I told them, the Romney people, you can't do that with me. You can't tell me what to say because I never know what I'm going to say. The idea of speaking to an empty chair only came to Eastwood 15 minutes before he went out on stage. He explained, there was a stool sitting there. It gave me an idea. If I just put the stool out there, I can talk to Mr. Obama and ask him why he didn't keep all the promises he made to everybody. 
The evidence suggests that Eastwood was given a latitude by the Romney campaign, including not using a teleprompter that would never be given to a politician. They couldn't bring themselves to tell the man with no name what to do. Crucially, this was not an isolated example of Hollywood's involvement in the political conventions. This actor probably isn't so well known to you. Um, in the UK, we're not used to the idea of giving actors a front and center role in our politics. I mean, Barbara Windsor's a conservative, but you would never know that. <laughs> the Democrats gave a primetime speech, by contrast, to an Indian-American actor called Cal Penn. He's the guy on the right there. Uh, Cal Penn is the star of the raunchy Harold and Kumar movies, which are about two college stoners who invariably end up in trouble. There's always a lot of nudity and a lot of swearing. Cal Penn actually has quite a political pedigree outside of acting. He campaigned for Obama in 2008, and in 2009 he quit, uh, he quit acting in order to work as the associate director of the White House Office of Public Engagement. He also went back to using his real name, Cal Penn Modi. In order to do so, he had to be written out of the soap that he was starring in called House. His character committed suicide in a very dramatic example of Hollywood serving the interests of Washington, D.C. <laughs> Cal Penn was used to advertise the 2012 convention, starring in a video in which Obama telephones someone unseen to ask them if they wouldn't mind doing some work for him. The camera then pulls back to reveal that he's talking to Harold and Kumar, who are sitting on a sofa smoking dope and eating junk food. Ergo, when he spoke at the convention, just like Clint Eastwood, Cal Penn was exhibiting two identities. On the one hand, he was playing himself, making an impassioned plea for both the president and his liberal policies. On the other hand, he was playing his stoner character, Kumar. The mix of styles was evident in the jokey, satirical way that he referenced Clint Eastwood's speech, which had just been given the week before. He said, I've worked on a lot of fun movies, but my favorite job was having a boss who gave the order to kill Osama bin Laden and who is cool with getting gay married. So thank you, invisible man in the chair. Why did the Democrats, Democrats invite Kumar, by the way, whose marijuana smoking is illegal in America and has been very strongly uh, prosecuted and persecuted by the Obama, Obama administration, why did they invite him to speak at their convention? Because the 2012 election is, isn't about reaching out to the center ground and the middle. It's increasingly become about stimulating the party's bases, identifying key demographics that always vote Democrat or always vote Republican and bringing them out in as large a numbers as is possible. Because this election isn't about appealing to ordinary people in the middle, it's become about stimulating the grassroots demographics. And the Democrats hoped that Cal Penn would appeal to ethnic minorities and young people. Never mind that in reality he is nothing like his character. He's 35, not 25. He's a vegetarian. He's a Hindu. And he famously told a newspaper that he never smokes weed and he thinks the very idea of it is disgusting. Team Obama wanted to use Cal Penn in order to make the president look cool and youthful by association. Likewise, Clint Eastwood at the Republican convention was also playing two quite different roles. Yes, he was playing himself, an ordinary concerned citizen. But he was also channeling his character, Dirty Harry. Which suggests what? Well, the character communicates toughness, no-nonsense conservatism, a willingness to shoot first and ask questions later. 
Again, never mind that in reality, Clint Eastwood is 82 and also surprisingly liberal. He's told newspapers that he's pro-choice on abortion and he supports the right of homosexuals to get married. In fact, during his speech, he criticized the war in Afghanistan, which was started by George W. Bush. But none of that matters. Just like Obama hoped to win ethnic minorities, women and the young by reaching out to people like Cal Penn, so the Republicans are desperately trying to motivate their core base of white, older men to go to the polls. Indeed, it's a famous statistic that if only white men voted, then no Democrat would have won the American election since 1964. It's possible that there is more, one, more than one way to watch these convention speeches with different demographics regarding each one and interpreting it very differently. Conservatives might have watched Cal Penn at the Democratic convention and thought, well, who's this young hippie? Liberals might have thought, cool, it's Kumar. By contrast, liberals would have watched Clint Eastwood and thought, that guy needs to retire. Conservatives would have thought, we could do with a man like that in the White House. <laughs> the purpose of my research on Hollywood is to make a case for why celebrity activism is far, far more important than you might think. Say Hollywood activism, and most people think of vapid, vain self-promoters engaging in things that they don't understand and discrediting politics in the process. That's largely true. And a very good example of that was the involvement of Hollywood in the Wall Street protests of 2011. So in 2011, some anti-capitalist protesters occupied Wall Street, and Hollywood descended upon them. Michael Moore and Alec Baldwin, the star of the sitcom 30 Rock, who you may remember as a movie star in the 80s and 90s, tweeted revolutionary screeds from Zuccotti Park, while, while comedian Zach Galifanakis, Billy Bob Thornton, and Aaron Eckhart videoed messages of support. Roseanne Barr, famous for having played the comedian satirical, the, the sitcom uh, matriarch Roseanne, gave a speech to the crowd in which she said that if she was elected president, she would guillotine the rich. And she's, by the way, running for president this year. The fact that all these people belong firmly in the 1% of rich people targeted by the anti-capitalist demonstrators did not go unnoticed. When the record producer Russell Simmons, a man worth an estimated $340 million, was booed when he tried to speak, one guy in the crowd shouted out, you're part of the problem, Russell. Another one said, you're only here to sell records. Republican New York State Senator Dean Skelos chided Alec Baldwin for siding with socialists and anarchists when Baldwin had just spent $11.7 million on a new condo in Greenwich Village. This sparked a Twitter war between the two men. Baldwin overwhelmed Skelos with superior numbers. Baldwin has 478,000 followers on Twitter, and the Republican representative and elected official has only 1,000. This is what the public sees of Hollywood activism, brash, fashionably radical, and self-aggrandizing. But just with Cal Penn's and Eastwood's speeches, they could be read in a very different way. Ask yourself why it even mattered that Alec Baldwin endorsed Occupy Wall Street, and the answer comes back to his Twitter account. In the early noughties, the, ad the advent of internet activism subverted Hollywood as a fundraising institution. It became less and less important for aspirant politicians to come out to Los Angeles to raise cash, and much more important uh, for celebrities to lend their name over the internet. 
In 2009, actor Ashton Kutcher, the star of That 70s Show, became the first person to have over a million Twitter followers, beating CNN in an unofficial million followers contest. Today, that actor is followed by 9.3 million people. By contrast, Mitt Romney, who is running for president at last count, was followed by 288,000 people. Twitter had given people like Baldwin a platform from which to tease the press with a threat of a run for the New York City mayoralty, as well as turning a faded sitcom actor into a much sought-after endorsement amongst national Democrats. Most of his 478,000 followers, of course, are apolitical fans of his sitcom 30 Rock. But Twitter allows the star to draw their attention to events and ideas that fans would otherwise never encounter. It would only take 10% of his following to retweet a Baldwin tweet about global warming for several million people to end up reading it. According to one 2009 study, Twitter's uh, followers uh, tend to be liberals. The site's followers are more likely to be female than male. They are most likely to be under 34, and many of them are well-educated. Ergo, Baldwin was speaking to exactly the same people that Cal Penn was speaking to at the Democratic National Convention. Celebrities have thus become a method by which politicians who look and sound nothing like ordinary people can communicate with ordinary people. Working through the medium of popular culture, Hollywood stars are surprisingly effective ways of spreading a political message. This brings me to the crux of my thesis, the idea that Hollywood activism secretly matters. Political scientists call the kind of influence that Alec Baldwin, Cal Penn, and Clint Eastwood enjoy soft power, the ability to change the way that others think through co-option and attraction rather than through open conflict. When discussing Hollywood, historians and commentators tend to talk more about its hard power, which usually means making an obviously liberal movie or endorsing a presidential candidate. This image of Hollywood as an industry that wears its ideology on its sleeve dominates the public consciousness. But the hard power machinations of Hollywood are often overstated or imagined. As an institution, Hollywood is not as politically active as you might imagine. For example, it's commonly thought that Hollywood promoted American entry into World War II by making anti-Nazi movies throughout the 1930s. But that's simply not true. Before 1941, Hollywood only produced two anti-war, anti-Nazi movies, one called Confessions of a Nazi Spy and the other a Chaplin comedy called The Great Dictator. And they didn't make one single film advocating American entry onto the Allied side. Why? The studios were worried about alienating European audiences and losing cinema receipts. And some, um, some of the studios, despite being dominated by Jewish employees themselves, actually granted the Third Reich's request to fire non-Aryan employees in their German-based offices. Even when the war began, Hollywood's output remained largely entertainment, not propaganda. A 1942 study by the Office of War Information complained that roughly two-thirds of that year's war movies were spy pictures or comedies about camp life. They weren't doing what the president had asked them to do, which was to make films that encouraged people to fight and fight with valor. As an industry, Hollywood rarely engages in open proselytizing, precisely because surveys have taught it that it's bad for business. So instead of jumping on their soapboxes, powerful movie makers use soft power to get what they want instead. 
And I've identified three ways that Hollywood has, over the decades, shaped national politics. They are money, networking, and branding. The first of these is money. From the very beginning, Washington was drawn to the ability of Hollywood to raise vast sums of money quickly. That really was the root of their early relationship. In exchange, the studios expected to gain influence and favors from whoever they helped to elect president. Most of the early movie moguls, people like the Warners or Louis B. Mayer, were Republicans who liked the pro-business attitudes of the grand old party. In 1928, Louis B. Mayer used money to help secure Herbert Hoover's nomination at the Republican National Convention. In exchange, Mayer was one of the first people invited aboard the presidential yacht after the inauguration, and he even spent a week with the president at his holiday house in Florida. These relationships were a mix of the cynical and the idealistic. In 1932, the Warner family did some private polling and discovered that Franklin D. Roosevelt was most likely to win that year's presidential election over Herbert Hoover. Overnight, a family who had campaigned for Hoover and were committed Republicans suddenly became Democrats and supporters of Roosevelt. Roosevelt won the 1932 election, and in return, he made sure that the Warners were exempted from regulations that would have forced them out of competition against cheaper, independent distributors. The Warners returned to the Republican fold after World War II and after Roosevelt had died, and pretty much throughout the 50s, they became Republican campaigners. Like many other studios, they essentially loaned their stars to the different presidential campaigns to use, them, to use for fundraising. One of Warner's studio's most prominent stars used in this way was Ronald Reagan, who began his political career campaigning for FDR and the Democrats. In fact, Reagan was actually regarded in the 1930s and 40s as one of the most liberal stars of his age, and even, involved, even engaged in a campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. This centrally coordinated star system broke down in the 1970s as Hollywood entered its second golden age. Vietnam and Watergate undermined people's faith in political institutions, while falling cinema receipts because of the rise of television undercut the studios and their purchasing power. Changing tastes in movies ushered in a new generation of directors and exotic actors in the 1970s who followed no studio system and who were independent professionally and politically. They refused to be bought and sold for the use of political campaigns. Star activists like Barbara Streisand built alliances with anti-establishment politicians like George McGovern to create new informal fundraising networks that were outside of the studio's control. Actors could now pick and choose their own issues. So whereas before they'd be told who to campaign for, now they would pick a candidate, organize a fundraiser themselves, and even sometimes expect some influence over policy in return. The most famous example of these 1970s liberal stars was Jane Fonda, and she's on the left uh, during a visit to Hanoi. She began the 1970s campaigning for the end to Viet the Vietnam War and ended it campaigning for the fight against the spread of nuclear power. She used the proceeds of her films to finance her political ambitions, her various campaigns, and even a Senate run by her husband, Tom Hayden. By the 1980s, the amateurism of these star activists had begun to evolve into the professional money-making machine that we have today. 
Producers like David Geffen and directors like Steven Spielberg began to approach politics with the same market-orientated philosophy that defined the blockbuster movies of the 1980s. Hollywood began to employ talent scouts and agents who would literally pick and choose between presidential candidates, pass them around Hollywood, and invite people to give donations. The process, of course, favored charismatic politicians over politicians who were overly intellectual. Where the party is once nominated square technocrats like Thomas Dewey or Adlai Stevenson, people who the studios told them to support, Hollywood instead began to promote the careers of youthful charmers with good looks, people like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. In 2012, a recent fundraiser held by George Clooney netted Barack Obama an astonishing $15 million in one evening. That's how dramatically the money-raising machine has increased its power. It's important to stress that money only buys influence if a politician is willing to give it in return. And one person who has never played by the rules on this is Barack Obama. In 2008, Obama was very happy to take Hollywood's cash. One Beverly Hills fundraiser pulled in $9 million. But after the election, Obama remained aloof from those who had supported him and invitations to the White House in the first year of the administration were surprisingly few. There's a glimpse of this awkward relationship in Edward Klein's brilliant book about Obama, which just recently came out. In the amateur, Barack Obama in the White House, Klein writes that mega-donor Oprah Winfrey arrived at the White House for an interview, only to be shocked to discover that she had to join a queue at the security gate with ordinary people. She complained to Klein that she was forced to talk to staff who, in her words, only made $75,000 a year. Yes, that was actually her words. And Oprah was humiliated when Michelle Obama failed to treat her as an equal and said to Oprah, you wouldn't believe what it's like living in a house this big. <laughs> Oprah was incensed that she, might, she was implying that she had, didn't live in a house that large. Clearly, the wife of the leader of the free world needed to learn a little humility. The second way that Hollywood affects national politics is through networking. <clears throat> the trading of influence for power, for money, and style has created some dynamic and important partnerships between movie makers and politicians. The balance of the power in these relationships has fluctuated over time. In the early 1960s, celebrities gravitated towards President Jack Kennedy like groupies. Their glamour was used very cynically to augment Camelot's beautiful image. And the most famous examples of that are probably people like Frank Sinatra and Marilyn Monroe, people who were never expected to have any influence, but who simply brought good looks and money. By the 1970s, however, actors like Warren Beatty and Shirley MacLaine liked to regard themselves as equals with politicians, and demanded input into strategy and policy. And it's often been said that had either George McGovern or Gary Hart won the presidency, then we may actually have seen Warren Beatty have some role in the White House. By the 1990s, it was President Clinton who was actively courting the stars rather than the other way around. And indeed, there is no one in American politics who can be more better described as Mr. Hollywood. He really genuinely loved the company of rich and famous people. By the way, they didn't always return the favor. There's a wonderful story from 1996 
uh, where Cher agreed to campaign for Clinton but then dropped out when she discovered that the White House would not be financing a private jet. <laughs> the effect of networking is that both cultures, the political and the establishment, can start to shape each other's perceptions of the world around them and of how ordinary people see them. Hollywood brings artistry to Washington, and Washington brings the allure and the myth of power to Hollywood. A profound recent example of that was the relationship between actor Ben Affleck and Congressman Anthony Weiner. That's Anthony Weiner on the right, and that's Ben Affleck on the left. Anthony Weiner encouraged Affleck to become more active in politics and even goaded him into considering running for Congress. In return, Ben Affleck, a good friend of Weiner who admired him as a thinker and a politician, provided ready access to celebrity money, including a lot from Leonardo DiCaprio, and more importantly, encouraged Weiner to regard himself as a star who operated outside of the rules of ordinary politics and was guaranteed someday to be a serious presidential candidate. It was thus a little surprise when Weiner was caught sending unsolicited photographs of his genitalia to strange women over Twitter. <laughs> he had, in the opinion of much of the press, come to regard himself as a star like Affleck, who could do whatever he wanted and was adored by all. Of course, the reality is that Ben Affleck is very good-looking, and as you can see, Anthony Weiner is not. <laughs> but the most complex and important way that Hollywood has changed national politics is through creating images and brands that shape the political debate. Sometimes the, the industry does this by making movies that define a particular issue or candidate. And other times, it's through a personal association with candidates that can affect their public brand. One man who really understood this, and I would argue the man who first effectively did this, was Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, who was elected president in 1968 and forced from office by the Watergate scandal in 1974, really appreciated movies and their power. He was a movie buff. He, he really he spent something like every other night in the White House watching a movie. And he had incredibly conservative tastes. He was a guy who really, really knew what he liked. According to historian Mark Feeney, he publicly denounced swearing in films and he walked out of West Side Story halfway through because he thought it was anti-American. When he threw a re-election booster for his Hollywood backers in 1972, one guest described his incredibly conservative guest list as, quote, a cocktail party at the Hollywood Wax Museum. <laughs> the invitation list had not changed much from the 1940s, but it was still fairly impressive. Frank Sinatra, Charlton Heston, Glenn Campbell, Clint Eastwood, Jack Benny, Jimmy Durante, George Hamilton, and Sammy Davis Jr. Most of these people, crucially, were former Democrats, people who had worked particularly for Jack Kennedy. And the dress code was formal, not Chuck Norris denim. The presidents told his staff that he wanted them to offer the guests, quote, the very best brands of scotch and bourbon, not the ordinary stuff we've used in the past. The goal of the party was twofold. On the one hand, Nixon wanted to show that the Republican Party could be glamorous and even sexy. He was obsessed with imitating the Kennedy brand of Camelot, which had been full of beautiful celebrities. Indeed, the party in 1972 became the last occasion when a Hollywood uh, crowd was used by the Republican Party to communicate sophistication rather than cowboy chic. But the president also understood that as liberalism was becoming more fashionable amongst the young, among people like Jane Fonda, 
so conservatism was growing, growing momentum as a countercultural force of its own. That's why Nixon invited Clint Eastwood, known as the man with no name, to be a delegate at that year's Republican convention, much as he would be later in 2012, while the movie introducing the president of the convention was narrated by cowboy actor John Wayne. The 70s are best remembered in movie terms for their experimental liberal filmmaking, films like Apocalypse Now, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, or All the President's Men. The hot talent of the time was left-leaning, even hippie, Jane Fonda, Julie Christie, Warren Beatty. But Nixon understood that movie politics is just as diverse as its many genres. Individual movies can be interpreted in multiple ways. One huge hit in the early 70s was The Godfather, which was meant and designed to be an attack upon hyper-masculinity and even an attack upon Nixon personally. Some people said that uh, Don Corleone is Nixon. But it also concurrently became part of a revival of white ethnic nostalgia, of people thinking back happily to the times of the 40s and 50s when families were strong and immigrant identity was still strong. It could be argued that the Corleone family's patriarchy offers a seductive alternative to bureaucratic welfareism. Moreover, different people watch different sorts of movies. The early 70s might be best remembered by historians for the radical current in Hollywood, but audiences also paid good money to see movies that protested that radical current. Depictions of literal cowboys became more critical, McCabe and Mrs. Miller or The Wild Bunch, but the cowboy as bringer of justice was reborn in contemporary settings. Charles Bronson's movie Death Wish normalized and glorified the vigilante. In Charles Bronson's New York, political correctness and human rights had emasculated the police and shifted the protection of the law from the victim to the villain. It took an architect with a gun to return order to the streets. Like Bronson, Clint Eastwood made an easy transition from the Wild West to the ugly city. Dirty Harry was a huge hit in 1971, and while audiences loved its depiction of an angry cop breaking all the rules, what is amusing is to read the many damning critical appraisals of its politics, which now, looking back on it, feel fairly dated. Newsweek called Dirty Harry, quote, a right-wing fantasy. The critic Pauline Keel said that it was an overt attack on liberalism, and the reviewer Roger Ebert accused it of fascism. Feminists protested the movie outside the Oscars ceremony because they felt it brutalized women. Richard Nixon, meanwhile, understood that audiences conflate characters and actors, and that Eastwood as Dirty Harry had become Eastwood the man in the minds of the voters. They could probably no longer tell the difference between the character and the actor. That's why Clint got an East invite to the 1972 convention, not just because he was a famous wealthy backer, but because he was visual shorthand for the administration's determination to clean up crime in the inner cities. It was therefore really in the 1970s that the Republican Party and conservatives became unofficially the party of the cowboy. <clears throat> Backlash was all the rage, and conservative politicians did their best to exploit it. Journalist Gary Wills remarked that, quote, Richard Nixon had policies, but beneath those positions were the values that cowboys like John Wayne exemplified. John Wayne voiced some ads for Nixon's re-election campaign and recorded a best-selling LP called America, Why I Love Her. It featured the Duke reeling off some geographic marvels, a Kansas sunset, Arizona rain, San Francisco fog, snowflakes in the Rockies, accompanied by the Billy Liebert Orchestra and a chorus singing 
America the Beautiful. The Wayneization of Republican politics was all pervasive. Even Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, a fat academic from New York who had never fired a gun in his life, in all seriousness told an Italian interviewer that he identified most with John Wayne and referred to himself as a lone cowboy. <laughs> the man who best represented this new cowboy-politician hybrid was Ronald Reagan, and I've chosen a photo with Clint Eastwood to re reaffirm the point. Elected president in 1980, the conservatives' policies were equated with his cowboy image. Many critics accuse Reagan of having a, quote, shoot-from-the-hip style. Certainly, he rejected equivocation or negotiation with people he disagreed with. When the air traffic controllers went on strike, Reagan didn't talk them through it. He simply sacked them all. Hollywood worked in concert with the White House to affirm a new spirit in the 1980s of national self-confidence rooted in classic conservative principles. Hollywood churned out movies that captured the mood, called things like Rambo First Blood, 1982, which told the story of a Vietnam vet played by Sylvester Stallone who takes revenge on a corrupt sheriff, effectively refighting the Vietnam War on, on American soil, and this time around winning. The exercise of America's post-Vietnam tensions was more obvious in Rambo First Blood Part Two, when the eponymous hero is invited to return to Vietnam to rescue some POWs. Rambo asks, him, asks his employer in his near-incomprehensible draw, tell me, do we get to win this time? The Rambo aesthetic, lashings of blood and sweat you can almost smell, was replicated in movies like Terminator, Delta Force, and Die Hard, which helped make screen le legends of future Republicans Arnold Schwarzenegger, Chuck Norris, and Bruce Willis. Reagan took these muscle men movies far more seriously than the makers of them probably did. He often quoted Rambo in his speeches, and the next snapping, gun-blasting Vietnam vet became shorthand for his foreign policy style. Following the premiere of Ra Rambo II, Reagan told journalists, quote, after seeing Rambo last night, I know what to do next time a terrorist attack happens. When he sent U.S. warplanes to force down an Egyptian airliner carrying the Palestinian hijackers of an Italian cruise ship, a British front page screamed, Rambo Reagan. The president once interrupted a cabinet meeting on nuclear weapons to discuss the plot of a movie he had just seen called War Games, in which a teenage boy accidentally hacks into the Western defense system. Reagan quoted the Star Wars franchise a lot. He named the Strategic Defense Initiative, a missile system designed to shoot down Soviet nukes, Star Wars. And he referred to the USSR as the evil empire. When he made uh, a phone call to a US space shuttle, the president said to the astronauts, may the force be with you. Over time, the Reagan-Wayne-Eastwood image became the predominant conservative identity. In the days after September the 11th, President George W. Bush said of Osama bin Laden, there's an old poster out west that I recall that said, wanted, dead, or alive. At a National Cattleman's Beef Association meeting in February 2002, Bush told the crowd, either you're with us or you're against us. After the Senate approved the War Powers Resolution of October 2002, Bush thanked members of the Congress and said, quote, the days of Iraq acting as an outlaw state are coming to an end. 
In November 2002, at the NATO summit in, the Prague, in a Prague castle, where Bush was generating international support for war with Iraq, he said, contrary to my image as a Texan with two guns at my side, I'm more comfortable when I travel with a posse. Public and press played along with Bush's cowboy theatrics. A common theme in newspaper editorials was Bush's similarity to Clint Eastwood's Man with No Name. The Slate's William Salatan wrote, quote, Another cowboy is riding into town, less crazy but with much bigger guns, the President of the United States. The All-American Post, published by the Vietnam Veterans and Airborne Press, argued that Bush was torn between behaving like Gary Cooper in High Noon or Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven. The article claimed that Bush resembled the Gary Cooper-style cowboy after 9-11 in his deliberate approach and thus gained much political capital. However, in his dealings with Iraq, Bush emulated Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven by becoming a sadistic, a sadistic bully. It was not only politicians who described themselves as acting like cowboys, but American journalists were actually using cowboy archetypes, archetypes to describe politicians. All of which brings me to the moral of the story. It is worth noting that not only has Hollywood affected uh, American politics through money, through networking, and through image making, and it's also true that in many ways it has empowered politicians by giving them a vocabulary they never had before, in some regards, I've generally concluded that Hollywood's influence can be really rather harmful. Clint Eastwood, in 2012 with his speech, very nicely brought to an end a career that had really quite helped to define conservatism, but perhaps too well. There are, after all, good things about the Hollywood cowboy. He means what he says, and he is kind to his horse. But the myth is built upon too many fallacies to be a good model for government or politics. The world isn't divided between good and evil, and very few problems can be solved outright by violence. Even a cowboy's honesty is hard to imitate, as the fact that Richard Nixon was brought down by Watergate just proved. But the image of the cowboy, as perpetuated by Hollywood, casts a long shadow over the Republican Party, limiting policy choices and reducing every election to a battle between archetypes. In 2012, during the primaries, all the different candidates competed best to represent the memory of Ronald Reagan. And Michelle Bachman famously traveled to a town in Iowa in order to invoke the ghost of John Wayne. The only problem was that she got the wrong town. It was, in fact, the home of the gay serial killer John Wayne Gacy. And by referring to Wayne in her speech, she appeared to endorse <laughs> everything he had done. The modern Republican celebrity ideal, it seems, is all man. He could be a retired action movie star, likely to wear a cowboy hat, almost certainly smoke cigars, and typically inhabits a political position to the right. There's nothing wrong with any of these things except that the public pronouncements from these modern representatives, people like Eastwood or Bruce Willis, suggest less someone who happens to be a big fan of Edmund Burke and a good conservative than someone who is undergoing the male menopause. When the Iraq war started in 2003, action star Bruce Willis actually telephoned the White House directly and volunteered to fight. He was surprised when an aide told him, sorry Bruce, but you're too old to enlist. A good example of the dangers of Hollywood's influence is Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is perhaps the best example. 
In the 1980s, he had played unstoppable heroes who could overcome absurd obstacles in order to defeat their opponents. And politically, that's a very attractive model to run for election on. In 2003, he decided to enter the election in California to become the new governor, or what was described as the governator. And he ran on an equally superhuman platform. On October the 7th, 2003, he arranged a demonstration for the media of his determination to turn California around through sheer strength of will and character alone. The press boarded something called the Total Recall Bus and followed Arnold's coach, which was called the Predator, to the Orange County Fairgrounds. The candidate delivered his address in front of a huge steel wrecking ball. In the movies, he said in his strong Austrian accent, if I played a character and I didn't like something, do you know what I did? I destroyed it. He told the reporters that he didn't like the state car tax. So, to the crowd's delight, the, rock, the wrecking ball was dropped onto a car. Above the cheers, Arnie cried, Hasta la vista, car tax. Arnie won the election, and indeed re-election, but most people now conclude that his, that his time spent as governor was very bad for the state. One of the first things he did in office was to repeal the car tax, and it ended up costing California roughly $5 billion a year in revenue. The governor was forced to persuade the legislature to, to borrow an extra $15 billion in order to cover the missing cash. Today, California is still paying off the interest on the bonds it took out, and it struggles to pay the salaries of its teachers and policemen. In the case of Arnold Schwarzenegger's governorship, it's a great tragedy that life is nothing like the movies. Thank you.